0: This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Stephen Burrow, author of the novel, The Five Sorrowful Mysteries of Andy Africa*.
1: I discovered it was like the most powerful piece of writing I had composed up to that time in my life. And and that um, passage is still the opening of my novel.
0: We'll be back with Stephen Burrow after these essential words. So this past June marked the 10th anniversary of First Draft. The first episode aired on June 10th, 2013, and if the person I am today told my younger self that I'd be nearly 450 episodes deep into this show in 10 years, I would have laughed at my future self. But alas, here we are, and how did we get here? At what I would estimate is 9,000 hours of work I've put into this podcast. That's reading, researching, interviewing, editing, arranging the guests, I am the entire staff. And I guess the answer is, how did we get to 9,000 hours, is a mixture of insanity and blind but ferocious dedication to sharing conversations about craft and literature. This isn't AI, folks. This is weekends where I sit and read and so many things in my life that get fully ignored for this endeavor, And I honestly consider it a gift to the world. It's a place where my passion and I hope some amount of finesse and skill marry together to offer this conversation you're about to hear directly to you in the intimate way that audio works. And if you get anything out of this episode or the hundreds that came before or hopefully the hundreds that will come next, I am asking you in the most honest and authentic way I know how to please support this show. While I love making it and talking to authors and the entire endeavor fills me up, it does not pay the bills. And if we want to support art in this world and conversations about art and lift the curtain up and really talk about how art gets made, well, your support will help keep this show alive. It's here today because of listeners who became supporters. And that's the truth. So, I'm asking you to bolster this rich dialogue, this juicy material, with financial support. It's not easy to do, but sticking with this for 10 years wasn't easy to do either. And it's not going to be easy in the future. But if nothing else, it's reliable and consistent. With every episode, I lean into the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I think about them as I create the show and I hope you can feel them in the content. I simply cannot take this time to create first draft without your support. Please join me on this journey by becoming a donating member to the first draft community. You can support the show today at patreoncom slash first draft writers. You can donate on a monthly or annual level as a thank you to my patrons. You receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show ad-free, pitch-free episodes so you won't have to hear this again, and writing tips from my guests. Again, you can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash Writers. Please stay tuned. At the end of the interview, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for your listening support, and thank you for being here with me today, right here in this moment, and on to the 400-something episode. My interview today is with Stephen Burrow, who was born in Nigeria and earned an MA in Creative Writing from the University of East Anglia, where he received the Booker Prize Foundation Scholarship. He lives in Norwich in the United Kingdom. His novel is called The Five Sorrowful Mysteries of Andy Africa and tells the story of Andrew Aziza, who is 15 years old growing up in Nigeria with a single protective mother. Andy fantasizes obsessively about white girls, especially blondes. When he's not in church at school or hanging out in town with his friends, wishing to become one of Africa's first superheroes, he's contemplating the larger questions with his teacher, Zara, and his equally brilliant friend, Fatima, who has feelings for him. Together, they discuss mathematical theorems, black power, and what Andy has deemed the curse of Africa. Andy falls in love with the first white girl he meets at a church party, but then multiple crises unfold as a stranger claims to be Andy's father, an anti-Christian mob has gathered, and Andy must come to terms with his identity and his continent. We began with Stephen Burrow sharing the inspiration and origin of his novel.
1: Yes, yeah, so the story happened, um, I mean, it came about, say, accidentally, right? Um, one evening uh, in June 2018, I was uh, sitting in my living room, and then suddenly this voice just comes to me, and it's just this powerful voice that's full uh, of so much shame, urgency, um, guilt, and all that, and... Just a voice that that just wanted to be heard. A voice that, I mean, I was just screaming and screaming and screaming for somebody to, to put it down, to write it. And uh, yeah, and luckily for me, I had my Blackberry phone, your Blackberry 8520, then <clears throat> beside me. And so I grabbed my Blackberry and, and I just began writing and, and just writing and writing and writing. So I wrote around um, 500 words. Yeah. So, um, so I, I took a pause to like read what I had written because it seemed so frantic and all that. And, yeah. and when I began to read what I had written, it's, I discovered it was um, like the most powerful uh, piece of writing I had composed up to that time in my life. And and that um, passage is still the opening of my novel. So there the, the, the were people I love, blondes and all that. So that is yeah what I wrote on my phone then. And then, um, of course, the, the book went through so many processes, revisions, and all that. But um, I think the basic idea, I mean, has remained the same. And um, yeah, so I grew up in this community in I mean Nigeria, I mean post colonial, Nigeria, right? Um, where I mean, there's this huge inundation of Western culture. Um, this I mean, this huge presence of course of the legacy of colonialism, and uh, and and again, Nigeria, my country is like five or so countries merged together, forced to be together, to form, to be a single country. And and so just like how my character Andy is trying to um, unravel, discover his identity. And um, so also my country is so, and not just my country, even <clears throat> the African continent, or just trying to discover itself and what it is. And yeah.
0: Well, I have a few follow-up questions because that was um, there was a lot of really interesting things in there. But I think what might be great to start with is since what you since that voice that was screaming at you and didn't go away is still the opening of your book, I'm wondering if you want to read like the first two paragraphs.
1: So yeah, so the first three paragraphs of the book. So chapter one, dear white people. I love white girls, especially blondes. Blondes who wear their hair in ponytails and once a week in pigtails. Is this a fetish? I don't know. I'm just pretty sure I'll marry a white girl, a blonde. Do I think black girls are ugly? Of course not. That would mean, Mama, is ugly, and I'm not gonna take that shit from anybody. The problem is, I don't know what blondes I really like. Yes, I've watched a million Hollywood movies from pirated DVDs. My phone is a database of blonde shades because I can't pass a blonde pic without downloading it. I've got exactly 72 blonde friends on Facebook and at night when everyone has boarded sleep to mass, I check out Pornhub for blonde pills and using hand, etc. In fact, I haven't seen a blonde before because this is Africa and they are minus 0.00 Zero, one, yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> so what do you think was the predicated, this loud voice coming to you and had you ever had that happen before?
1: Yeah, I mean, as I, as I came of age and as I read more books and all that. Um, yeah, so I I began to, to relate strongly to I mean, some writers uh, who have like very, who write with very strong, On distinctive voices. And, uh, like, for example, some of the themes uh, examining in my novel is the theme of coming of age. I mean, the search for identity, right? My character searching for his identity, who he really is in this post colonial, well-pooled, post colonial nation that he's found himself. Um, And one of the books, actually, I actually have the book here. One of the books I I, I read in my early 20s that just took Shook my world a bit was uh, um, <clears throat> this book, *A Clockwork Orange* by Anthony Burgess. So, I mean, I remember reading the book. I actually read the um, like an e-book version of it on my phone then, yeah. And it was it was really crazy. It was like, wow. So you could write a book like this. I mean, a book that could be so irreverent that that could be so. I mean, that could approximate very strongly to. Um, I mean, so the reality of like of these characters. I mean, of, of a young boy, of a teenage boy, and all that. I mean, um, I mean the voice, like the beginning of uh, a Clockwork Clock Orange. The voice has conveyed so much rage, angst, anger, and all that, and um, which I find very fascinating and very revealing, because up to then all the books i really read, just books that had this kind of um, process of like a like a process style, process style, right? That uh, is much more what people would describe as literary, right? Uh, not, not very so, you know, not very streetwise, voice and also so streetwise or whatever, that, that it doesn't, for me, approximate very strongly to, I mean, these experiences, these, these characters that I'm fascinated with, or like my own personal experience of coming of age, of being a young boy and all that. And then, like on that book too, I also loved reading that, did that for me too, is um, <clears throat> The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger, yeah. I mean, just hear myself. Anyway, so um, so I don't know anyway. I I think um the the voice just um like opened up my own search for identity, um like my roots where where I came from, I mean I mean the streets where I grew up, um, the conversations I had with my friends, like all this complicated um and dynamic of uh, of uh, of of post-colonialism, I'm going to mention that word a lot in this interview. I think post-colonialism and yeah, so so all the stuff and and the voices gave me um open this modality, these roots to to open up all these camps, to open all these doors, and to to explore as much as I could these complications that I mean, a 15-year-old boy grew up in contemporary Nigeria experiences.
0: So when you were writing this, um, Andy, in the book, Andy actually gets to meet this white girl named Eileen, and he zeroes in on her. He's so excited to finally meet his blonde, and they become good friends and eventually lovers. And I'm wondering for you, when you were writing this, if at all, or how much Eileen was just a symbol of the colonialists, like how much was she, was him falling in love with her, this desire maybe to be in this other world other than Africa.
1: Yes, I I think it's um I mean both ways. Yeah, both ways. Because um for me what's hugely like fascinated me, what's what I found really fascinating and really exciting about uh, many elements of this novel. Uh I mean the first story and the second story, the the subterranean story, right? Um so let am not, I guess, too, too far anyway, but, but like Eileen, I mean, on the one hand, she's, I mean, this blonde British uh, young woman who is beautiful, who is kind too, but also complicated, who like, inherits all this narrative of, um, of yeah. uh, colonial, colonialism and post-colonialism and, and all that kind of stuff, whatever. Uh, so on the one hand, and, and, and on the other, she's, of course, this huge metaphor, uh, this huge symbol for the aloe of the West um, for, you might even say, um, Andes and many young Africans um, uh, like internalized racism or you might call it um, like internalized racial oppression or whatever. Anyway, um, so she's this symbol, this, this standard or this Western standard, this Western ideal for what a woman should be. Um, Yeah, and and, uh, Yeah, and she's just alone, I said, I mean, for the ways that drugs Andy. Yeah, so she works, of course, she functions in in the novel. Um, I mean, very denotatively and also qualitatively. um, Yeah, just in very, very different stance and all. Yeah.
0: So, Andy, let's talk a little bit about who he is as a character. He's young, he's intelligent, he's very good at math, which I think you also studied math. He's also really interested in literature, like you. Some of the book is told in in poetry, so he has um, poems in there. And he's, you know, he struggles. He used to be very close to his mother. He's less so just because he's coming of age and trying to find his own way in the world. And it is sort of a, um, I wouldn't say it's illicit, but it's, you know, he... Having this interest in this white woman, she's the only one in town. He's the only one interested in her, makes him different. He also has a little bit of a struggle because he has a really good friend named Fatima, who is Muslim, who also there's some natural attraction there and real true friendship there. So as you were writing Andy on the page, especially as you were saying this voice came to you and it's told in first person, Can you talk about your experience of writing him and I am not assuming at all that he's you, but if there's elements of, of you in him, like how you parse that out to make this full character?
1: So, um, in terms of, um, like my, like relationship with actually my own protagonist, right? With Andy and like how we relate, um, to each other. Um... Like I mean I wrote the first draft of this novel very quickly and it's and it's much more different, yeah, in comparison to I mean what 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 we have now here yeah, anyway. Um I mean there is strong similarity, it's just uh, like the beginning and maybe the ending. Um so um uh, well in like I mean that first draft didn't quite work as as well as I wanted it to. Um, and it just seemed not to be like a story that was fully really coming from me in a way like I mean, I don't mean it. Mean in terms of, I mean, having autobiographical elements and all that, but like in terms of uh, not having me much of me inside in in, in novel. I'll give an a, a very good example. Um, so like one of the the one of the greatest breakthroughs I had, solely in the second like second iteration of writing the novel, was realizing that um, like my great passions, my my passions in. Interest in like mathematics, poetry, literature, and philosophy too. That's uh, that it could be. I mean, wonderful tools for Andy, my narrator, to to employ to use in his uh, unraveling of himself, in his um discovering for himself, creating for himself, like a post-colonial identity, and and unraveling his world, understanding his world. The I mean, the paradoxes, the ironies, and all that of. I mean the post-colonial world of being a Nigerian, being a young African boy, and all that. So, so it was very different for me, and and I went deeply into that. here. Yeah, and you would see that like some mathematical theorems, also mathematical ways of um, so I think mathematical frameworks. I would say, like you know, <clears throat> of looking at the world and in, in the novel. Yeah, so so that, that was a huge breakthrough, and to bring as much well of myself in the novel while trying to like to be able to access this fictional character. That I'm trying to repeat. Um, and that was hugely truly helpful because um, it helped to, re- to reduce the gap, I would say, from who Andy is. I mean, as a teenager, I I wouldn't have this kind of life and Andy had anyway. I mean, some element of his life, of course, are like a mine. I mean, some of those paradoxes of the whole post-colonial experience. Um but yeah, so trying to, I mean, bring a little of myself as much as I, as I can as tools, devices to like help myself, to help myself in the, in the trajectory of writing a story to, and as well as in unraveling the, the character, I mean for the reader and the, yeah, I'm making the book as much of my narrative as possible.
0: One of the things that he says, uh, because he is into math and poetry early on, is in the end, poetry and maths are the same thing. The pathways to truth. So I wanted to ask you about that line.
1: Yeah, it's it's a wonderful line, actually. I mean, I didn't um, have um, I mean the line in in most of the drafts I, I wrote. I mean, just one in just one of the final drafts, right? The editor oh just I said oh I mean that she's seen these themes, the themes of maths, poetry, uh, science, um, arts science, faith, and you know, all these dualities and you know, all that she's seen this these themes play across the narrative and that oh for me to try to like post it a bit more t- to the reader and you know, all and and that was where that line came from anyway. But um yeah um again like as I said earlier um one of the great breakthroughs I had was realizing that this difference this is spirit aspect of myself my interest and you know, all that couldn't so far, far away, when so far apart as as they might seem, when in two so different, they might seem to be like different disciplines. But our I media yeah, actually much more similar than than I think I should think, and and yeah, than most people think. So under this this um, disciplines intertwine and do tell each other. So yeah, and <clears throat> and and talking about that more, I mean, mass and poetry, mass um, science and the arts. I mean, they were well, all just. To different disciplines, or geared towards the pursuit for truth, I mean, defining what truth is, um, to help to advance, of course, our human situation, um, our, I mean, our struggles with our day-to-day lives, anyway. Um, and if you and if look at it in, in another way, I mean, um, science and the arts, or like math and poetry, I mean, they're just different uh, facets of uh, philosophy, I mean, philosophy, like, operationalizing two different pathways, right? Uh, and so and, and now and then we need these two, these two faces, these two facets to uh to solve most of the problems we, we do encounter. I mean, there are many problems that as a mathematician, I mean as someone who studied mathematics, there are many problems that we, we couldn't define, let alone you know, like solve in our math classes. Uh, like for example, like a problem of identity, for example, I mean, it's one you can't even really define, or like is it race? Or or the legacy of colonialism—all this kind of stuff. I mean, they're just so advanced. They're not so advanced. They're just so um, so nuanced and and so slippery, actually, that we need other ways of thinking, other ways of defining truth or examining truth, and uh, to to explore them. So and and so like in my novel now, Andy, um, uses um, science, math. We see a lot of uh, physics. We see some maybe some chemistry we see some, um, of course, mathematics. So on the, on the one hand, on the other hand, we see him like, employ poetry, uh, philosophy, uh, religion, especially religion, I mean, religious, uh, uh, like theology in particular, like, I mean, trying to define God for himself, what God is and what is the place of God in like a, a post-Christian society, um, the legacy of, I mean, Western religions, Western, Middle Eastern religions, like in Nigeria, in Africa in general. So, so Andy like uses these different, these disparate uh disciplines, his ways of viewing the world, in unraveling himself for the reader, in discovering his place uh, in the post-colonial world and uh, and in wrestling with his emotions, with his desires and all that.
0: We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash Writers. You mentioned that he was really interested in philosophy and he has a whole philosophy about life. And in your book, I wasn't really sure how to read this, so I'm, I'm excited for you to tell me. He has this this theory of the curse of Africa and written in your book, the way you write it is capital H, capital X, capital V, capital X. And so I'm curious about that title, if there's actually a way to pronounce it. And if you can talk a little bit about his beliefs of, of what this curse is and, and where that came from for you.
1: This is such a huge question. I mean, <clears throat> I wish we could have a lifetime to discuss it. Yeah, in terms of HXVX now, like uh, my supervisor, he pronounces it as hex-vex, right? Hex, cause and vex, and the vexing about the cause, right, of Africa. Of course, I, mean, I think this whole idea of, of Africa being under a curse or something, yeah, be under a curse. and all. Um, I mean, it's something I think perhaps, I mean, I've not read much about, about that. I think something that should do more, but whatever. I mean, it's something I grew up hearing about, I think it stems from, of course, from the West, right? Oh, like, I mean, when the colonialists, the colonizers visited, came to our shores, and then, oh, and you saw these people who they felt, oh, we're backward, we're, we're not human enough, and all that. And, and then there was something wrong about, about the whole place. Anyway, and they colonized, and when they left, they, and they, they claimed, or they expected it to be something else to, perhaps, to heal, recover overnight. And, and for the continents, whatever, the nations, to nations which which they formed, they formed to be forced to be to, to be nations, to become maybe as comparable to or as developed as their own nations, whatever. And then they came up with this theory of the course, right? Af- and Nigeria, Africa is cursed and all that. Um, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we, for we like decolonized and all that. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean we. we the whole process of trying to I mean, define our nationhood, trying to come together to, to form a nation. Um, I know that, I mean, so it comes with, with so many paradoxes, so many challenges, so many, yeah. And, and and sometimes we just revert to like philosophy now, we revert to, oh, like, are we actually like cursed as this guy said, these colonizers? Like, are we really like, maybe, maybe we actually are, I mean, to see how things are happening maybe. And then we, th- we see all these things and we think along those lines and all that. Um. So yeah, so I'm going to put a pin on that. I'll, I'll go back to the question and uh, um, like if you read the, the novel, I mean, something I like about the novel is that on the one hand we have a story. Yeah, and meets Eileen falls in love with her and he has these wonderful relationships with his friends, with Fatima. His mother Zara and all that. But again, we also see like an underlying story, or rather, underlying stories, like second stories that's like mirror or parallel like the main story. Like one of these stories now, it's um, it's it's like it's um, the idea that the narrative is in a way a, a superhero like narrative, a superhero story, and he sees himself as a superhero and and. And in fact, um, HSVX or the course of Africa, as Andy defines it, it actually could be seen as this super billion. So, Andy is in this huge battle, trying to like battle defeat um, this course of Africa, this um HSVX, and so and so he employs all this stuff, like you know, when you see like theories on any futurism that's under that, like. Philosophy now that was, <laughs> which we should get into now anyway that's something very interesting. So and the futurism so so and all that's like and also um, and this alter ego because superheroes often have alter egos. I mean the, the self that they want to be and don't want to be. Um, so that is Idna, and this dead brother, right? Um, who and the named uh, who and the names with the with the reverse of his name, right? Y D and A. Anyway, um. So, so Andy, Idna, Zara, and Futurism. So, I mean, they all. I mean, this different. It's different aspects. Like Andy, uh, sorry, Idna, and Futurism, Zara. Uh, I mean, help this this whole um, second story. Like help this second story to, to revolve to rotate. I mean, second story of the superhero narrative. So, Andy using and Futurism, which is a conflation of Animism and afuturism like to defeat HSVX and uh, to defeat. All these problems of post-colonial Africa, for example, like um Zara defines HSVX as, a, I mean, uh, all the, I mean, as a construct, right? That subsumes or that conflates all the, the negative things that have befallen Africa, such as uh, colonialism, um, slavery, which only for colonialism. Um, the collapse of, of our indigenous governments, um, and even xenocentrism—that's the set for otherness, for for the West, uh, for Western identities, and all that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You mentioned uh, Zara, and Zara is uh, very influential on Andy. She is his math teacher, but she's more than that. She's a good friend. She's a mentor, and she is into this movement, anti-futurism. Which, um, on some levels, the government doesn't like, and it is this whole philosophy. And I had never heard of it before. I didn't know if it was if it, that's common for people to know about that.
1: Yeah, anifuturism. Yeah, and if futurism, That's a conflation of animism and Afrofuturism. So it's. Uh, I mean, it's a concept I, I I developed on my own. Whatever, anyway. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I found it very fascinating how. Yeah, um I find that really fascinating like trying to like form a movement um, that's that's built on inherits built on like Africa's great history i mean our great past our heritage Africa's heritage um in animism in like traditional worship um and traditional African systems of thoughts um and beliefs and all that and then like and melding it with um, um Afro-futurism, and this movement that's, that that uh, seeks to like, create a future for, I mean, for black people worldwide. I mean, a future that we've been denied, uh, and all that. So, so like bringing these two together, the past, the future. I mean, in the present, to so aid the movement of the or this success, whatever the progress of the of the present. Um, yeah.
0: Well, that's what's so cool about writing novels is that you can create yeah. your own philosophies. You can create your own yeah. schools of thought and put them in your yeah. book.
1: Exactly, exactly. And, and uh, like, many characters in the you novel, know, for example, I mean, many other characters, like Andy himself, his friends, Fatima, and Ali. like, they just came as part of his story, right? But Zara, the character of Zara, it's a character that I, I deliberately, like, constructed, like, like I wanted to have this person in, in this in this story. I wanted her to to have this movement, this philosophy, this this system of thought and that that interrogates. I mean, the whole Western systems of of existence, systems of thinking about things. Anyway, um, so so Zara and, and so Zara serves as this. Uh, she brings about uh, a counter narrative, a counter argument, a um, a counter narrative, a counter argument, whatever. So and this. Um, Crazy um obsession um and loading and exaltation or whatever of, of Western systems of thought, westernization um and western philosophy. So she's so she's this uh, this she counterpoises the narrative in the way she counterbalances these argument. She yeah, brings the the whatever, she she contradicts and these and views. And because I wanted to have again to pursue this. Uh, thread, this whole narrative thread of duality and this motif of duality. Um, and not just to have Andy say, oh, blonde, blonde, it's Eileen, the seraph, it's, it's Eileen is the most beautiful person in the world, Eileen is whatever, and the West is the perfect place, West is all that. But to have, yeah, to, to bring like, a counter narrative to that and so that um, like the book becomes much more balanced. Um, uh, of course, I'm doing that without trying to judge, without trying to preach, uh, because I, I don't usually like novels that seem to have like just one train of arguments, right? Um, I think a novel should be, I mean, it depends on the novel, but I think in general, a novel should be, fiction should be as objective as possible in, t- in its representation, or in its mimesis, whatever, of the world and all that. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: I think what's really interesting talking about that duality is like in the end, if it's okay to say they have to make this decision, if they want to go to the Western world, they're making a decision to call the man as he's known in the book who can get them across the border, who can get them basically through the the desert and into Spain. And they decide to try and so in a way, he's like fighting this curse, but then, is he giving up on it because he wants to go to this other new world, this other new life?
1: Hmm. Um, in, in the novel, and this is, uh, I think, in the third chapter where he characterizes HXBX, I mean, because the curse of Africa, he uh, he claims, and he claims that I mean, HXBX is so powerful, it's so. I mean, it is is like a hyper object. Yeah? I mean, so huge is this, this planetary force that is a huge shadow like covering the continents that yeah. I mean that it's just impossible to defeat. yeah it's a kind of a, a sauron, whatever, in the Lord of the Rings or or yeah, or a, or an M, emperor property in Star Wars, right? Whatever. Maybe even more than that, uh, more than this these uh, characters, because like I think Andy gives a formula in the third chapter where he says um, HXVS, HXVX, or HXVX, we, yeah, because of Africa is equal to, um, uh, I think, Thanos, right, plus Sauron, uh, raised to power infinity, plus, yeah, raised to power infinity and all that, whatever, so, um, so, Anderthus, I mean, this, this, this chaos of Africa is so powerful that it's just impossible to defeat, and, and then the best way is to actually to flee from its reach. That is to flee from the continent and there. Uh, and, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's It must, yeah, it might, it might be pessimistic anyway in, in sense because, like, if you look at what is going on in my country now, I mean, things are getting worse and worse. I mean, I'm not over 30 yet. I will be 30 in August. But I can see from everything that's, that's happened since when I was a little boy um, that the country has been getting worse, like, exponentially. Like, it's 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 crazy. and And... Yeah, so I cannot even really imagine how people like my mother would, would say about it, like how things have worsened at, with time. And and I'm all and most times I'm very, very concerned about how the, the near future would be like. For example, I often ask myself, oh, if things are this bad in Nigeria and this bad in many African countries, so what, what will happen then? Like what would happen in the next 20, 30 years? Like how bad would things, can things get and all like? And and for example, my country I mean this I mean there's I already mean, huge unemployment, for example. I mean, this huge dictatorship and all and, and all people have been killed or um I mean <laughs> I don't want to even get into all that. But I mean make these crisis things there and 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 the population is, is still even increasing like exponentially. I think Nigeria will be like in twenty fifty. Will be like one of the top two or top three, I don't really know the number, but one of the top, top, most populated countries in the world. And can you, you imagine like, like what would the country be then, I you know? And so for many people anyway, um, the only option is to, to flee, to, to run away and uh, yeah, that's the only really way, I mean, they could defeat this curse, right? This curse place plaguing our nations, our continents and you know? all. Yeah, which is very sad.
0: We'll be back with this interview in just a moment. Remember, you can listen to this and every episode without ads and without these pitches by becoming a patron of First Draft at patreon.com slash Writers. Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Yeah, so um, earlier in the interview, I mentioned um, The Clockwork Orange. Uh, I mean, I've read so many other books. I mean, I read mean, passages from so many other books. Um, I mean, for example, I have my like, things fall apart here. It's a uh, book I mean I read it as a teenager. I think I 13, and, and it's hugely influenced my writing. You can see how old and all it's broken it is, and all yeah. But uh, yeah, but I think I'm going to read from uh, A Clockwork Orange because uh, it's one of those books that, like, leads the fuse for me. Right? Um, for, I mean, for my novel, that's, that I just put some interesting ideas in in, in my head here. And and my book also intertextualizes elements of uh, this book. Andy calls his friends drugs, which is what um, Alex calls his friends uh, in this book. So I'm going to read from um, the first chapter. In fact, the opening of um, the opening of The Orange. was it going to be then? There was me that is Alex, and my three drugs, that is Pete, Georgie, and Dim. Dim, being really dim. And we sat in the Korova Miqba, making up our rasso what to do with the evening. A flip, dark, chill, winter bastard, though dry. The Korova McBar was a Nick plus bestow, and uh, you may, all oh, my brothers, have forgotten what these bestles were like things changing so scary these days, and everybody very quick to forget. Music has not been read much neither. Well, what they sold there was make plus something else. They had no license for selling liquor, but there was no law yet against prodding some of the new vestiges, which they used to put into the old Monoco, so you could pit it with fellow sex or symptoms, symptoms, mix, <laughs> or dream chrome, or one or two other vestiges, which would give you a nice, quiet, quiet hollow shoe, 15 minutes admiring Bob and all his holy angels and saints in your left shoe with lights bursting all over your mosques. Or you could beat milk with knives in it, as we used to say. And this would sharpen you up and make you ready for a beat of 30, 20 to 1. And that was what we were repeating this evening. I'm um, starting off the story with. Yeah, so as I said, I mean, just a really wonderful opening. I mean, when I read it, then I think I was like 20 or 21. And it was like, like, seriously, so you can do this in a book. And it can be so streetwise. You can be so like, you can create your own words and uh, we can textualize so freely and all that you can, yeah. And it's just just so wonderful and uh, yeah, really wonderful. Yeah, really wonderful. piece.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard, or changed a lot from the first draft, or something you liked.
1: Okay, so um, so I'm going to read about. I read from a passage uh, from a novel that it, that was like quite tricky to write. Um, yeah, I think this went through. Like a number of drafts, so much writing and all and all that. Um, it's a very key scene in the novel in the I think in the 12th chapter. So in this scene, Andy um it was from Andy like, an, an and it's actually I mean a sex scene. So I'm not going to actually to read um where the sex begin, where the sex begins to happen, right? So I'm just going to skip from that part. I'm going to read book read from uh, the beginning of the scene and and a little bit after like the sex whatever It, it said that it didn't fully happen anyway. So um so it, it's a very important um uh, um passage in the novel because um it's from this passage from here that uh, that Andy begins to like strongly question his obsession I mean, for whiteness for for Eileen. um it's a kind of like a bridge between who Andy was right at the beginning of the novel, yeah, and who Andy like becomes, and uh, so yeah. So I'm going to let me read from 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 uh, from that part of the novel. We are watching Ireland's favorite film, Avon la lettre. It's about two biologists, a man and a woman, who makes at a science exhibition. They move around Paris, drinking in bars, having conversations about extraterrestrials, the motives, the reasons for their existence, their fetishes. The man believes the universe has brought them together for a reason, but the woman thinks their meeting is simply random. They spend the rest of the evening in a hotel trying to reenact all the positions of the Kama Sutra, while drinking and laughing. Eileen and I are kissing again. We close the curtains, take off our clothes, fall onto the bed. And now I'm going to skip to, each of my pleas seems, sorry, each of my pleas seems to accelerate its betrayal. I tell her, sorry sorry, and sorry, and sorry, and sorry, and sorry, and sorry. She says nothing. I sit back on the bed, stay at nothing. Through a small hole in the curtain, I see a protester with a placard, her body painted green, white cream. The guilt I felt earlier rises inside me, metastasizes. So that is that.
0: <laughs> Do you want to say anything more about why you chose that?
1: Yeah, I chose that because as I said, um, just, I mean, a very tricky scene to write. Um like my editors kept sending me back, oh, like this scene, like it's not fully working. Um I was, in some of the earlier drafts, like I knew it was just a bit too, I don't know, too annoying, or perhaps I mean, maybe too maybe overtly racist or whatever, or uh, yeah, and I'm in order to get it to um, make it like much more subtle and and um and and the i think what what's the solution whatever in the end was to actually try to like shorten the passage and and uh, um while trying to convey what i was trying to do anyway and yeah and i think it's a very very important uh passage in the book i think readers who read the book we get to see and why that is the case and all that yeah yeah i do li- i do like it too and it's funny and uh, And it's, yeah, and it's sad, depressing at the same time, yeah.
0: Where do you write?
1: So I write right here, I mean, in my my bedroom, right? So I write at at my desk desk here, so I just, yeah, I place my computer here and I just, yeah, I just crack on, right, yeah.
0: (laughs) What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: So, um, so I... I mean, when I'm around, when I can't go out anyway, so I, um, I, I, I like I watch football matches or, or I follow tennis. Um, you know, I, I just watch movies. I mean, I watch films and all that. Uh, now and then so we just go around Norfolk to explore. I mean, explore. I mean, the towns, the villages, the coast around here, and there. because I mean, I I grew up in Northern Nigeria, and so we didn't actually have like huge bodies of water, like, like, like around England here and there. So it's just nice to just go and, and experience nature around there. Yeah. To experience, I mean, you see the the ocean and all that, yeah.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: Yeah, so this has changed, I mean, over the years. Um, I mean, at first, uh, I mean, I used to show, um, like, my, my supervisor, my peer supervisor, like so he used to read like any drafts of like a lot of my writing and and later on, so he became my agent too. So I'll just send her like any chapter I've completed. Yeah, I'll just send to send to her and all and she and she'll read and give me some some notes. Um but now lately it's just more like my partner. So so whatever whatever I read, whatever I write, sorry, I so I just give her give her to read and yeah, and yeah, to get notes from her. Yeah.
0: <laughs> How have you dealt with rejection?
1: Yeah, well, so I mean rejection is tough and all and yeah, but and but I always try to remind myself, oh, why I'm doing this, right? Um because I mean I just have to write like it's yes, just nothing else for me, nothing else for me to do. I mean, um nothing else that I'm 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 this good at, I think, whatever. Uh, uh, and I'm this passionate about and uh, yeah, so after a while, of course, I mean you get rejection at hours and all, and and you take a few days, you don't do anything, and and then you shrug, you come back to writing, and I mean you come back to doing it because you remind yourself why you do it because I mean you love it, and it does something that's so deeply in, inside you, and and you can't just yeah, you can't just stop doing it anyway.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: I think my favorite word should be and. A and D because is this word that is so powerful that can concatenate anything like you can just join anything to any join use and to like link almost anything, right? And and for a, a writer, for a storyteller, and it's a very 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 crucial word. I mean, I think it's going to be a very very tough task to to ask writers to write something without a piece without and so like maybe I don't know whether that was, that's possible. Yeah, that's going to be very very tricky, very very difficult to do.
0: Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you.
0: If you liked today's show with Stephen Burrow, author of The Five Sorrowful Mysteries of Andy africa check out my interview with Nigerian author A. Igoni Barrett. We talked about his novel Black Ass, Kafka's influence on his book, and finding his story from a sentence. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 415 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and send some 10-year anniversary love. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Alice Elliott-Dark, Hernan Diaz, and Jennifer Groats. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey, I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.